As it has often been noted, the context of Scripture is Scripture, and so anytime we're moving exegetically, that is to say, you know, verse by verse and clause by clause and chapter by chapter through a particular book, then we're always looking at the context of the book as a whole up to that part and where it fits its place in the mystery of God being revealed from beginning um, to consummation. Uh, that is always the case. It is particularly the case this morning. Is This morning's sermon really isn't part three so much as it is simply the continuation and the finishing of part two that we didn't get to last week, if that makes any sense. So pretty heavy dose of review here this morning. The end has come, part three, never again in this age. Looking broadly at Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Now, as we've been coming to the end of Amos here, we've been looking back across everything that the Lord has said through the prophet and how the sin of Jeroboam the first was not the simple demonic paganism that you see of the Canaanites around them, but instead Jeroboam, with great intention, refashioning the God of the Hebrews, the one true God in the heavens, in the manner that he thought he needed him to be, kind of a pragmatic version of who he thought Yahweh was supposed to be. And so having corrupted and removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, they immediately fell into the vilest of depravity, the kingdom going as went the king. The madness of believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was set plainly before them. And so when it comes to Amos, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, in two years before the great earthquake, Amos, the simple shepherd from Tekoa, didn't simply hear, but he saw the word of the Lord. For it says in Amos 1 that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers, and a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that has ever come out of hatred. And so the word to the people of Israel is a word of woe, particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful to those who feel at ease and feel secure, and yet their feelings, as we have seen, do not match reality, for they are neither easy nor secure. They are in denial unto their own destruction, for they bring their God in their own hand, fashioned after their own image and their own likeness. And the reality is, is when you have a God that looks an awfully lot like you, you end up, by comparison, appearing to be awfully righteous, even when, in fact, you are not. Such provocation, such assault against the holy standard of the character of who God is will make a holy God swear. And having none greater to swear by, he swears by himself. He swears the promise of salvation to his people by himself. And he swears death to those who would trample it underfoot. For the Lord disciplines his people. Amos sees a hard word. Not an easy word. Not a pleasant word. But a glorious word. He sees a hard word from the Lord, a word that it says is so unbearable that the land cannot support it. 
And yet, in the strength of the Lord, the man of God will bear it. In Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see the beginning of this particular word where it says in verse 1 that this is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. And I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Silence. Huss. Silence is both the command of the Lord for them to be quiet, for they are getting exactly what they deserved, but much more terrifyingly, it is also the promise of the Lord. For silence will fall in Israel because of his judgment. In chapter 8 and verse 11 through 12, The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And the reason that silence is such a terrifying judgment is because the silence that is being spoken of is not simply the silence of joyful songs or the silence of of a wedding party. It is the silence of the word of the Lord in their midst. A famine of the effectual means of salvation a drought of the very thing that brings life from death. No word in Israel means no salvation in Israel. Behold, the end has come upon my people. And the Lord says that he will never forget. Last week we looked in chapter 8 in verses 7 through 8 where it says that the Lord has sworn By the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all all of it rise like the Nile, be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. The Lord says in swearing by the pride of Jacob that he will never forget is an absolute swearing against the standard of Jacob's pride and instead justice will roll down like water. It will turn over themselves like the Nile, seething and rising and foaming just to collapse and fall again. The Lord told them that he would never pass by them. Never pass by them again. It is the word of the Lord that brings salvation in Israel. It is the presence of the Lord that brings the word, and therefore his presence that gives them rest. And now they will have no rest. 
For Scripture defines salvation as the Lord passing by Israel. We looked at this last week in Ezekiel. He passes by Israel and he looks at them in their blood. He looks at them in their death and he declares to them the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord to them in that day was live. And there was a day in Israel when the word of the Lord rang forth from north to east and from coast to mountains. And it said, my people live and they lived, but there's a famine coming. Not of bread or of water, but of the word, for he will never pass by them again. And instead of the word of the Lord to live ringing forth in the nation of Israel, there will be silence. A silence that causes men to scurry to and fro in desperation hoping to find but just a whisper of what he would have to say. Centuries later, in Romans chapter 9, we find Paul mourning the loss of his brothers because of the word of judgment that has come upon national Israel. And You'll remember last week in Romans chapter 9 in verses 30 through 33, we see the apostle lamenting over the lostness of his people. And he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Well, why, Paul, if they were after this law so, so severely that should lead to righteousness, why didn't they get it? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but, if it was, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's heart is breaking, and mine is breaking, and yours should be breaking too. That the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob saw something in God that was worth having and pursued it as though they could attain the thing that God had that he would give without obtaining God himself. They thought they could do it on their own basis and by their own means and by their own works instead of the gift that comes only from him. They didn't understand if you want what God is offering, the only way to get it is to get God. That's it. And the only way you get God is by the gift of faith. That's it. And because they did not pursue it in that manner, the very thing that they had placed their hope in, they failed to reach. And yet, in the midst of such abject failure and judgment, Paul's heart is still based in the hope of the salvation of his kin. In chapter 10, in verses 1 through 4, Paul continues and says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is convinced at the very depth of 
his being, that the answer for all of this is not going to be found in the law or in the efforts of men, but in this heartbreaking scenario by which he is seeing so many of his brothers die without any hope in the world and apart from God, that the answer to that is Christ and Christ alone. For a holy God has sworn judgment. And it will be upheld based on the terms of the oath by which it was sworn. And so last week we considered the reality of national Israel and spiritual Israel. And that the existence of natural Israel being a testimony of the fullness of spiritual Israel is therefore dependent upon the reality of spiritual Israel. When, when we looked at Isaac speaking to Jacob and he said, man, if you're going to be able to obtain the land that is the testimony of what God is doing in our people, you must acquire the blessing of Abraham. If you can't get the thing that later Christ himself and the Apostle Paul will write about in the New Testament and say the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham when when he was told in you all the world will be blessed. If you can't get to the place where Abraham was, where he saw the day of Christ and rejoiced, you will never be able to acquire the land. You must first obtain the promise on which it is based. And even in the midst of the swearing of judgment, we see not simply the mercy. It would be, we, and it's mercy, man, but we would fall incredibly short of what is being spoken of if we just said, well, look, even in the midst of all this judgment, God's being merciful. No, what you see is not just the mercy. You see the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God functioning to bring forth mercy on his terms in the midst of this judgment. When it comes to the physical judgment of the physical nation, terrifying thing indeed God swears by himself in Amos chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 and in Amos chapter 6 verse 8 God swears by himself his own being his own character he swears by his own righteousness that this will come such an oath has no remedy except for its full execution either in this age or the ages of eternity to come. It's absolute. For the standard by which it is sworn on is immutable. The Lord said in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The Lord says, I'm altogether not like you. I'm not like Danny Joe Williams or his son or his father or his father all the way back through Noah and to Adam. I'm not like you. 
I'm not a man that I would lie. I'm not a man that I should change my mind. The $5 term here is immutable. He doesn't change. He's always the same from everlasting to everlasting. All good things come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If he says, I swear by myself that this is going to happen, I'm the standard, the standard doesn't change, then friends, it's going to happen. Your cities will burn. You will be drawn out through breaches in the walls straight ahead, not in a squiggly line. That means they're just going to go right through you. Hooks in your jaw. And they will lead you away. Lead you away to the dissolving of the nation. No longer any identity. When the Lord speaks about the judgment that is to come on physical Israel because of what they've done, the standard he swears by is an immutable standard. He swears by himself it will not be undone. And yet, in mercy, that is the result of the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, when he swears spiritual judgment upon the spiritual reality of Israel, God withholds, He remands unto Himself, according to His own goodness, the hope of grace. And He does so by making the standard of the oath something less than Himself. Friends, if what God swore, if you just changed one little portion of the phrase, and if you changed it to read what was sworn in chapter 4 or in chapter 6, there would be no hope for salvation for Israel. When you look in chapter 8 and verse 7, where it says, The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob, if you change the last half of that clause to say that the Lord has sworn by himself that surely I will never forgive any of their deeds, then it would be an open and shut case. But in the definite plan and foreknowledge of his mercy and grace, God saw fit when swearing spiritual judgment upon spiritual Israel to use a standard that was less than his own absolute standard and the standard by which the oath is sworn and that on which it is based is the pride of Jacob and unlike the immutability of God and therefore the unchangeability of that which is sworn by it where God's immutability where his character will never come to an end The pride of Jacob will come to an end. It will fail. And when it comes to an end, when that standard is no more, so will come to an end all all that was sworn by it. Uh, God won't swear national Israel's damnation upon himself because God doesn't change and he doesn't change his mind and millennia before he had already swore 
their salvation upon himself to Abraham. And so the question is, I think that's, that's kind of in a nutshell what we did last week. The question is then, is when will this be? If the standard of what is being sworn is the pride of Jacob, and as long as that standard stands, surely I will never forget any of their deeds, surely I will never pass by them again, then the big question is, is when does that standard fail? When does the pride of Jacob come to its end, or, or more to the point, when does the Lord bring the pride of Jacob to its end? When will this be? And furthermore, how can it be and still be true that he will, quote, never pass by them again? If indeed one day salvation will come to them. Well, when will it be? Amos tells us. It will be on a day when the sun goes down at noon and they mourn like they're mourning for an only son. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight and I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And now when you read that, you go, man, okay, that doesn't sound like there's any hope there at all. What that sounds like is absolute destruction. As a matter of fact, that basically sounds like what is being described in the book of Lamentations. On that day, declares the Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in the broad daylight. I will turn your feast to mourning. Well, that's not good. And all your songs into lamentation, and that's not good. And I'll bring sackcloth on every waist, and that's not good. And baldness on every head. And generally speaking, you know, most people would maybe prefer to have hair. Certainly in this day, it was a sign of judgment. I will make it like the morning for an only son. Man, we know that's not good. And the end of it like a bitter day. You say, Pastor, are you kind of stretching here? Are you trying to find in this? Are you trying to find in this like some kind of upside so that people can walk away, you know, at the end of the sermon and feel better? Is, is there really an upside here? There is an upside. There is. And it's because, the way we know so, is because Amos is not the fullness of the word of the Lord given to Israel. There's more. There's Isaiah, and there's Hosea, and there's Jeremiah, and Malachi, and Matthew, and Romans, and the Gospel of John, and the Revelation, the Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ himself. And the Lord speaks to Amos about these things. How can this be good? 
How can it be good that it is like the morning for an only son at the end of a bitter day? Friends, they have filled their plates full of bitterness. There is a time to mourn. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to have your waist wrapped in sackcloth. There's a time for all of these things under heaven. And that time will be a day when the sun goes down at noon and they mourn, not just in any way, but very specifically as one who mourns for an only son. And the Lord can look at them and say, I will never pass by you again. And he can look at them and say, I will never forget your deeds. And he can swear that this will occur according to the standard of Jacob's own pride. And it can all be true because temporal beings exist in the age in which they live. And this will all come after the end of this age and the opening of the next. In Matthew chapter 24, in verses 1 through 3, The apostles, well, they're not apostles yet. The disciples, looking at the very temple that is the copy, the shadow, and the testimony of the true spiritual reality that is at hand, they're considering it, and this is the way the conversation goes. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Isn't that great? Like he needs a tour guide, right? Um, he answered them. You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this is distressing to them. Not so distressing to Christ. He understands the depth of the mystery of God at this point that they do not yet understand. They will get it later, but they don't get it now. They don't understand that this thing is just showing them something that is eternal. In the heavens. And so, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, you know, having obviously had this rolling around in their mind, they come to him privately because this isn't the kind of conversation you want to have in front of the masses. They come to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so they understand that. Whatever's going on, whatever Christ is talking about, and it hasn't fully clicked for him yet. The, the Holy Spirit hasn't enlightened him. He hasn't inspired him. He hasn't turned the light bulb on. But they know that so, whatever he's saying is so weighty that when this happens, it will constitute the consummation of the age. And that things will no longer, and we're talking about the things of existence, will no longer be the way they have been up to this point. This is, this is going to be as big a deal as let there be light. And so they said, okay, 
If that's going to happen, Lord, we don't doubt you, but if it's going to happen, what's going to be the sign of it's happening? What's going to be the sign of your coming? They've put enough together to understand that this is going to be tied to his return as well. And when will be the close of the age? Now, Jesus answers this in a pretty long section that moves through chapter 24 and into 25. And we don't have... And if you're going to study this, man, don't neglect chapter 25. I'm going to say that, then this morning we're going to neglect chapter 25, okay? Sorry. We would be here literally all day, and that's not the, the, the point we're trying to make out of Amos. But really, you should read chapter 25 with that too. But so he begins this description. He says, okay, here's the answer. Here's when this is going to happen. Here, here's, here's the sign of my coming and what will bring about the close of the age. And he talks about, he says, first of all, don't get weirded out. Everybody wants to get weirded out. Every time there's a little saber rattling going on, every time there's a little famine, every time there's a little earthquake, especially if it happens somewhere in the Middle East, I mean, they're writing books about how this has to be the end of the world. Jesus says, really, it's not war in Jerusalem that you need to worry about. It's false peace. That's what you need to worry about. He says, don't fall into that trap. And understand this, what it's going to require of you Christians, it's going to require suffering unto death. It's not going to require the kind of suffering where you get um, made fun of on social media or where you get blacklisted on Twitter. It's going to require the kind of suffering where you get handed over to authorities, you are persecuted for real, not the kind of persecution that we have in the West today, but real persecution. So much so that those that you thought were your brothers and sisters when lawlessness increases and the love of many grows cold, they're going to turn you over. I'll never forget standing in a worship service, quote-unquote, and I use that term very loosely, um, once upon a time in a place far, far from here um, that was very concerning and somewhat disturbing uh, to us. And we walked out of there and, and Kevin Elliott looked at me and said, I wonder how many people in there would turn us over. I said, it's a great question. That's a great question. He says, all of this is going to occur, and then you're going to see something that you cannot mistake. You will see the abomination of desolation. The man of lawlessness himself walk into the temple and declare himself to be God. And what you need to do on that day is run and don't believe him. Because no matter what rumor you hear about, oh, he's over here, he's over there. Friends, when I show up, the holiness of Jesus Christ is self-evident. It doesn't require party tricks. It doesn't require dog and pony miracles to prove he is. They said, hey, show us a sign. He said, you'll get one, the sign of Jonah. You'll see me in the grave for three days, and you'll see me rise again. You'll get one more on the way back, and it's when the sky rolls up like a scroll because it is fleeing from my presence. This is the sign you'll get. You won't have to wonder. People, there, it won't be a rumor, folks. I don't care what left behind told you. It won't be a rumor. Oh, maybe this happened. Maybe that happened. Maybe this dude, when he splits the eastern sky and comes for his people, his holiness is self-evident. And so here's the way he describes it in Matthew 24 and verse 9. 
They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. You want to know what you say? Well, man, how do, I, how do I lead my family? How do I lead my wife? How do I leave my kids? Man, lead my kids, you know, with all that's going on in this world. Let me tell you what. You, te- you teach them how to endure. That's what you teach them. Because Christ said, if you, can't be, if you cannot be faithful in small things, you'll never be faithful in big things. So you teach them how to endure on the playground first. You teach them how to endure when they're getting a hard time on the bus, and you teach them how to endure when they're getting a hard time from their teachers or from their professors. You teach them how to endure when they're getting a hard time at work. You teach them how to endure in the small things so that when the big things come, they'll be prepared to do that. This is what we do. The one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom, while they're enduring, and the reason they're having to endure is because they're proclaiming the gospel as they go. They're discipling all nations. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And here's what the end looks like. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That's a mouthful. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What they're going to say is really sharp. Here's what you got to keep in the back of your mind the whole time. When I see the one who shed his blood for me, I will know him. I will know him. As a matter of fact, Scripture says when we see him face to face, we will fully know as we have been fully known. This is not, man, when you see Jesus Christ come for his people, you won't have to do the math and check the theology to know whether or not it's him. You will know that it's him. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For his lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You say, okay, what in the world does this have to do with Amos chapter 8? Here's what it has to do with Amos chapter 8. The breaking of the pride of Jacob. All of these things will come on the day when the sun sets at noon. And they mourn like those mourning for an only son. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is the day when the sun is turned to darkness. The same day that while generally speaking the tribes of the earth are mourning, Israel is mourning as mourning over an only son. Because when they see Christ... And they realize that because of the fact that there has been a famine of the word of the Lord in them for now over for millennia, that the only son was right in front of them. And all they did was reject and reject and reject and reject him in the pride of Jacob. Because they thought they could take their God in their own hand and make him what they wanted him to be instead of what he actually was. We see it in Jeroboam's day. We see it in Christ's day. Well, man, this isn't how the Messiah is supposed to go. Far be it from you, Lord, Peter said. In Zechariah in chapter 12, it's described like this. The day the sun goes dark and they mourn as mourning for an only son. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, 
on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The day that the pride of Jacob by which God has sworn spiritual destruction upon Israel, the day it is broken, is the day that the sun goes black at noon at the return of Jesus Christ when they look on him whom they've pierced and they weep bitterly as one mourning their firstborn, as one mourning their only son because the realization hits like a freight train that the salvation of our God and the Messiah for which we have been longing has been right in front of us now for over 2,000 years. And in that moment, the definite plan, the blueprint, based on the foreknowledge, the willful intention of God before the foundation of time, The very thing that was unfolding in Amos will come to its perfect fruition. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad, Ramon, and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. And on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. That's the day that the pride of Jacob fails. The day that they are broken and crushed and weeping and mourning having been provoked by jealousy, and they cast it all aside. And in that moment, the standard by which God swore their spiritual destruction is no more. It's brought to an end, and it's brought to an end by nobody less than himself. And in that day, the standard of their damnation fallen fountain of grace rises. And all the living descendants of Jacob are saved in a moment. The opening of a brand new age. Paul speaks of this event in Romans chapter 11 Verse 25, when he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If their rejection means reconciliation of the world what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead 
Well, even in the midst of great judgment, because of his definite plan and foreknowledge, the Lord is executing the means by which grace, mercy, and salvation will come to Israel. And in doing so, Gentile, he is executing his definite plan and out of his foreknowledge and making sure that salvation comes to you. We covered in in depth in the book of Romans. We won't do it this morning, but the fact of the matter is, is the salvation of the Jew is not grafted into your salvation, Gentile. Your salvation is grafted into theirs. The root that is Christ was given to us through this nation and these people. And if you're going to be saved, they must be. Lest the very vine into which you have been grafted fail and you fail along with it, but the Lord's not going to let it happen because when he swore to them their condemnation, he swore it on the pride of Jacob, but when he swore to them their salvation, he swore it on himself. I promise you, we know which hand will win. What's it look like? As we get in there, that's the content. That's the content. We get into there, and we would be fine to do so. But I got to tell you, if this stuff doesn't light your fire, then you, you know what's then your wood's wet. This is not intellectual. This is not simply intellectual knowledge. This isn't just studying the blueprints of how God is going to bring salvation both to Jew and Gentile alike through through judgment. I mean, good grief, it's not in the notes, but just, I mean, look what, look what he says in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, just real quick. Verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with him when I take away their sins. What does he say next? As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so... They too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. People go, man, you're preaching Amos. Amos is, Amos is harsh. Let me tell you something about Amos. Amos is the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God that in the disobedience of Israel and the removal of the word of God from them that would bring them back to obedience, you and me might have a chance to get saved. This is the season, Gentiles. So, when we look at this stuff, this isn't just high doctrine. It's not just complex theology, man. This is what God's doing, and what God's doing is awesome. And the reason it's awesome is because it means you get to live. That's why it's awesome. 
so that there's not silence among you, but you hear the word of the Lord to live when the gospel is being proclaimed. This is what the Spirit of God is doing. He is calling His own to live. So, when you look at it, it ought to be with more than passing interest. Amen? Amen. More than passing interest. And so, what does this day look like when the sun goes black at noon and Israel's mourning like they're mourning for an only child and instead of silence once again for the first time in millennia throughout Israel rings the booming voice of God. Live! What's it look like? Okay, here's what it looks like from Israel's standpoint. Isaiah chapter... Oh, that is so not right. I don't think. Good grief. Isaiah chapter 60. Yes, thank you, Lord, for a moment of recall. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 through 16. But I want you to really grab on. Remember what the apostle said, Lord, what is it? What's going to look like? What when are these events coming? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age when all of these things occur? Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. There's no salvation without judgment. No salvation without judgment. Oh man, we want to preach it that way so bad today. We want to preach salvation without judgment. Justification without condemnation. Friends, it's an impossibility. If you're not condemned, what do you need to be justified for? If there's not judgment, what do you need to be saved from? So here it is. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. And thick darkness, the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. That's what salvation is. That's when judgment and darkness is covering everyone else and the Lord says, for you, salvation and light. The nations shall come to your light. He's talking about the nation of Israel. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you, and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. 
Who are those that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish." Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And then this, And whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, silence, I will never pass by you again. I swear, I will never forget what you've done. I swear, not by myself, but by the pride of Jacob. And on the day the standard fails, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever a joy from age to age. And you shall suck the milk of nations and shall nurse at the breast of kings and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's what it looks like for Israel in that day. A day when there is no longer silence. The day when Jacob's pride has been destroyed by God himself and they mourn and they weep. The day when the sun goes black at midday and he opens a fountain. For grace and pleas of mercy. When they will know that he is their redeemer. That's what it looks like for Israel in that day. What does it look like? For the Gentile saints. Well, for the Gentile saints, particularly in leading up to that day, it looks like a ministry unto the provocation of jealousy. You guys should remember it well from Romans 11 and verse 11, where Paul says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not being. Why? Because in Amos, God is working his 
definite plan according to his foreknowledge that Amos is only but a part of. (laughs) Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Not being. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the first thing that we do is we rejoice in the fact, what does it look like for us? We rejoice in the fact that God has seen fit at great personal cost to bring salvation to us. And that he's doing that in order to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Well, you know what he's going to say. He's going to say their full inclusion will mean life from the dead. Here's your motivation, Gentiles. Do you want life from the dead? There's some things that have to happen first. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul says that when the mystery of the gospel amongst the Gentiles is magnified, it functions to bring about jealousy in Israel. For if their their rejection means reconciliation for the world, What will their acceptance mean except life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. You want to be holy, Gentiles? You want to see the resurrection of the dead? Then the first fruits have to be holy. How do we get there? There is silence amongst them. Magnify the gospel amongst the Gentiles. And in doing so, whether you realize it or not, you will function to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You'll never do it by being a better legalist. They tried that. Remember, they pursued a law as though it were by works and not by faith. They're way better lawyers than you and me. They're way better legalists than you and me. You'll never do it by you'll never do it by legalism. You'll do it one by one way. Christ being the end of the law for all who believe. You want to see. You want to see Christ split the eastern sky. You want to see your salvation come on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. You want to see the things that the disciples were asking about. Lord, tell us what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. Man, you want to see that? You know how you do it? Man, you go and you spread the gospel as hard, fast, far, and wide as you can spread it. That's how you see it. Even so, Lord Jesus, come.